This podcast was, until today, the Candidate Everyone podcast. It was about my run for President of the United States. After much counting and analysis, I am today finally admitting defeat in my campaign. What can I say? I lost. The fact is, nobody voted for me. I probably should have learned something from that, but I didn't. Instead of learning from that humbling experience and backing off, retreating from public life, I've decided to double down, use my own name for a podcast, and talk about pretty much anything and everything I feel like, which is what I'll do from now on. I assume that you, my dear sad listener, doesn't want to hear me rant on just any topic, so I'm going to break my episodes up by broad topic. So far I've got current events, broad thoughts about the world, and Torah. This week's episode is about Torah. If you don't want to hear me talk about that, just wait for the next episode. As a warning, I will often get too big for my britches, and I don't expect this to be a popular podcast. I don't even need it to be. That's why I've decided to drop my production values. I don't have the time to sustain them. You'll hear my six kids sometimes. You'll hear cars outside my window. You'll hear the flaws in my delivery. You'll also hear what I have to say. Hopefully, you'll hear something useful. The fact is, I've come to the realization that you've got to decide if I've got anything worth saying. I can only know the impacts my words will have if I say nothing at all. Finally, as this is a largely scripted show, I've got pretty good transcripts on my website, josephcox.com. I've given some thought to the format of the Torah podcast. Back in the days before Corona, I used to speak pretty regularly, and I was pretty good at it. But a two or three minute speech in synagogue isn't a podcast, so I don't want to replicate that. I also used to have discussion groups. Very few people came, so I probably don't want to replicate them either. I've decided to mix it up instead. I'm going to do segments. Maybe I could call it the five faces of Torah. First will be inspirational, then political, then trivial, then structural, and finally, I'll share my answers to common questions. Let's start with inspiration. If you've heard me speak before, you know I love to talk about symbolism. I think every name, every material, every animal, everything in Torah has a symbolic weight to it. It isn't an unusual perspective. Sometimes people use symbolism to complicate things, though. I think symbolism can greatly simplify things. See, I'm not a mystic. I think the symbolism in Torah is meant to be pretty simple and straightforward. It is meant to be a means of using the physical to capture the spiritual. This symbolism frames the story of Joseph. Specifically, it frames the story of the dreams. Let's walk through it. In the first dreams, Joseph dreams that the moon and stars would bow to him and that the sheaves of his brothers would bow to his sheaf. The symbolism here is obvious. The stars represent the fates of his mother and his brothers, and those fates depend on him. The sheaves represent the sustenance of his brothers, depending on on his sustenance. Now the brothers read this in a very negative way. Joseph is going to dominate them. He is going to subjugate them. Joseph probably reads it in the same way. He's the favorite son with the funky coat. But the dreams could easily be read in a slightly different but critically different way. Joseph is going to be protecting his brothers. After all, they don't bow to him. Their stars and their sheaves do. Joseph doesn't share this interpretation, though. I don't think he even knew it. He's got some growing up to do. 
Next, the butler, or wine steward, dreams that there is a vine with three branches. It is budding and blossoming and bringing forth grapes. He takes the grapes and presses them into Pharaoh's cup. The baker dreams that there were three baskets of bread on his head, but the birds were eating from the topmost basket. There is an obvious interpretation here as well. Egypt invented bread and exported it throughout the ancient Mediterranean. Canaan, the land Yosef had come from, was known for its wine. This contrast between wine and bread is why we abstain from bread on Pesach, Passover, but have four cups of wine at the Passover Seder. We are symbolically leaving Egypt and coming to Israel. If we look at the dream from the general perspective of peoples, there are three vines and three baskets, not representing three days, but three generations. There are three pharaohs from the time of Yosef to the time of the Exodus, the one who knew Yosef, the one who enslaved the people, and the one who fought God. Likewise, the Torah records three generations from Yosef to Moshe, Levi, Yocheved, and Moshe. Cast in this light, the dream of the winemaker was the dream of the Jewish people. In three generations, the vine of Israel would grow and flourish and eventually emerge ready to be dedicated to the service of the king. By contrast, in three generations, the fully baked and matured Egyptian, Egypt, will have its highest power eaten away by forces from heaven, otherwise known as birds. The word for basket that is used in this part of the dream is later used to describe Paro's pride. But Yosef does not share this interpretation, as obvious it is as it ought to have been. He credits God before he interprets, and then he asks for the chance to interpret. Then he tells a personal story, not a national one. It is one that speaks to the baker and the wine steward, but goes no further. He sets the fear of the wine steward aside, but gives the man no reason to rescue him. He is helped, but aside from gratitude, he has provided no information that would lead to the favor being returned. If Yosef is learning, then he has learned to tell a story. He isn't just being silent as he was in the beginning. If God is giving him the interpretations, then Yosef's partial credit to Hashem has granted him an interpretation that is not dangerous, but is also not terribly useful. Then comes the third set of dreams, Paros. These are also obvious. A bull represents a nation's will, a common perspective throughout the region. A cow represents its potential. Paros' thin cows eating the fat ones represent a nation losing its potential. The seven thin ears of corn eating the fat ones represent a nation losing its food. Here Yosef says, It is not in me. Only Hashem can answer. Then he either provides a beautifully crafted interpretation or is given one by God. I believe God provides it. Paro tells Yosef a modified dream, but Yosef interprets the original. In the interpretation, Yosef sets aside the first dream. Instead, he focuses on the second. God provides him with an interpretation, but Yosef takes it further. He offers Paro an action plan, and then offers him the greatest thing of all, purpose. He tells Paro he should act so that the land does not cease. Paro, a man not lacking in anything, can reach beyond his own time. He can be responsible for the timeless land itself. He can acquire what even a man with every possession and every power does not necessarily have. Purpose. Yosef gets the job. Through the progression of these dreams, we see three patterns. First, Yosef moves from giving no interpretation at all to giving an interpretation to advising what to do with his interpretation. 
Second, Yosef moves from seeing no purpose greater than himself to finding a purpose for a man as great as Paro. Third, Yosef moves from motivating others to hate him to motivating others to ignore him to motivating others to act on his behalf. Finally, and fourth, Yosef has moved from showing off his own fate to acknowledging God to finally stating God's overwhelming role. As he grows, God provides him with increasingly useful interpretations that serve his needs. In reality, all of these trends are intertwined. Caring about others is wrapped up with finding them purpose. Finding them purpose is wrapped up with motivating them. Finding ways to motivate others is enabled by realizing our own limits and by giving credit where it is due. And giving credit where it is due is wrapped up with caring about others. Why is this relevant to this week's Torah reading? It is relevant because this week, the first of the dreams finally seems to come true. The brothers bow to Yosef. But Yosef has learned Instead of rubbing their faces in it or claiming his superiority, he does what he should have done at the start. He says, quote, it is an English translation, of course, and God sent me before you to give you a remnant of the earth and to save you alive for great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. He has made me a, far, a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. He does not claim rule over his brothers. He is there to serve some greater purpose and to recognize the role of Hashem. It is the highest point of his maturity. What can we learn from this? We all have our dreams. I wouldn't mind a wildly successful podcast and books that sell like hotcakes. But to be truly successful, we have to learn the lessons of Yosef. We have to interpret our own dreams. We have to try to understand what they are really about. Second, we have to find a purpose in our dreams that is greater than us and greater than we can ever be. Third, we have to learn how our vision can fulfill the needs of others, particularly their own need for purpose. Quite simply, no vision is realized without others to help make it a reality. Finally, we have to recognize our limits and the place of God in our lives. Only then can we have useful interpretations, useful understandings of what is occurring around us. I think this is a great message for the restart of a podcast by an ambitious fellow like myself. So I'll lay out what it means for me. Let's start with interpretation. I want the successful podcast and the book sales because I genuinely believe I have something worth sharing. In fact, I don't need the podcast or the book sales. What I want is the ideas themselves to spread whether or not my name is attached to them. That's my own interpretation of my dreams. I'll give you an example. About a month ago, my children quoted one of my Divrei Torah back to me. It was a Devar Torah explaining why Amalek hated Israel. Fundamentally, it was about understanding even your greatest enemies. But my kids didn't get that Devar Torah from me. They got it from the rabbi at their school, who I don't know and who doesn't know me. I was delighted. I believe the idea of trying to understand your enemies, even Amalek, can lead to a better reality. This was the fulfillment of a dream. My name doesn't need to be attached for that dream to come true. Yes, this is the Joseph Cox show, but I started with the interpreter speaks, candidate everyone, and literally dozens of fictional voices. My own branding wasn't my first port of call. I've decided to go with it because the breadth of what I want to talk about doesn't fit under another umbrella. What about helping others find fulfillment? I believe we exist to act in the image of God. 
Our possibilities are endless, but we place stumbling blocks in front of ourselves. The loss of opportunity and potential people create for themselves, the loss that they impose on themselves, is sobering. To mix metaphors and advertisements, my goal, as crazy and lofty as it is, is to help replace those stumbling blocks with wings. I want the ideas in this podcast to spread because I think they can help people. I think that because they've helped me. Finally, like the original Yosef, I must acknowledge God. My Torah books have a single phrase included in them. Baladai Elohim Ya'aneh. It means, it is not in me, God will answer. I quoted it earlier. It is what Yosef tells Pharaoh when Pharaoh asks him to interpret. There are many interpretations of Torah and of dreams. When I have been lost and confused in my own Torah study, I have asked Hashem for interpretations. I believe any of us can. And I have received answers, as I believe any of us can. I have a way to go, but the more we acknowledge the role of God, the more useful, the more fulfilling our interpretations of the world will be. If you don't appreciate these Zivrei Torah, disregard them. But if you enjoy them, turn your regard to Hashem and the beautiful Torah He has created for us to learn from. The second segment of my Torah podcast is going to focus on politics. Not Democrats versus Republicans or Netanyahu versus whoever. Really, I want to talk about ideology. The word politics just gets people excited. After the Great Reunion, Yosef proceeds to leverage his control of the grain into complete power for Paro. He buys all the animals, people, and land. The Egyptians are relocated across the whole land and turned into sharecroppers. The political question is an ancient one. Did Yosef do the right thing? On the one hand, through his wisdom, he delivered safety and life. On the other hand, he robbed the Egyptian people of their independence. And what he did wasn't necessary. This is a very contemporary question. Does the government or society truly have ownership of everything? Are we simply sharecropping when we, manages our business, when we manage our businesses or do our work? Is that the basis of taxation, which normally goes far beyond 20%? Or do we own everything, and do we pay the tax for services the government provides, including protecting that ownership? Each of these realities can look exactly the same in practice and in law. I took a business school class, which fit firmly into the stakeholder capitalism theory of business. It argued that corporations were created to serve society's interests. This is, of course, a historical. Corporations, going back to Roman law, were created so a corpus could own property, sue, and be sued. It was to refer to a modern controversy, giving the rights of people to entities that existed in law alone. With the stakeholder capitalism approach, corporations exist to serve society. Increasingly, society is represented by government. In a way, the owners of the corporation become sharecroppers, getting to keep some of the yield from the assets they are caretakers for. But with the same tax rates and legal structure, those same owners could be owners who happen to be obligated to provide for the common good. These are two critically different sides of the same coin. On the one side, people own and have a duty to the common good. On the other, the common owns and yields to people some part of what those people manage. One speaks about the power of individuals to be fulfilled, and the other speaks about the power of society to use individuals for its own purposes. Which path is better? 
I think the Torah makes this answer clear. The trivial section is going to be a few interesting points. First, in the prior Torah portion, the wine steward said he was imprisoned in the house of butchers. Using the national interpretation of the dreams, this seems fitting. Jewish children are drowned. Taskmasters are brutal. Egyptians die in massive numbers. The Exodus is not a bloodless event. Both peoples, both the Egyptians and the Jews, spend three generations in the house of the butcher. Second, the previous reading refers to Yosef as Avrech. This can be translated as father of the king. In Japan, major families know the limits of genetic stock, so they adopt promising young adults from outside their own families. The Toyota family has controlled Toyota for generations, but it isn't a genetic family. They've adopted adult children to manage the business. I believe the Egyptians, with their incredibly intermarried family lives, probably suffered from terrible genetic issues. Avrech is a possible solution. Instead of adopting a child, you adopt a father, an advisor who can help the pharaoh overcome his own natural limitations. Finally, the Torah says there are 70 souls who come down to Egypt, but only less 69 of Yaakov's descendants. I believe the 70th is Asnat, Yosef's wife. She is the only of the, one of the wives listed, suggesting her inclusion in the people. She's also the mother of two tribes in her own right. Finally, Yosef was always traveling for work. It was Asnat who raised Ephraim and Menashe, the first brothers to be so imbued with purpose that they did not fight one another. I think she is a fitting inclusion in the 70. She leaves an example to be followed, and that is why I bless my own daughters. May you be like Sarah, Rivka, and Asnat. I want to talk about structure next. The stories of the forefathers provide us with a series of lessons. They build on one another, giving us a roadmap to our own actualization. Avraham starts with the love of God and a desire to help his fellow man. He learns the fear of God, the ability to act even when you don't understand. Yitzchak grasps for the solid and concrete, Esau's food, Rivka's sport, farming, but learns to appreciate that what truly matters is the relationships and the connection to God. Yaakov is full of will and wants to revolutionize the world, but learns that change comes through working with reality that already exists. Yaakov learns self-control. Yehuda learns to take responsibility for the powerless and weak, and Yosef discovers purpose and how to both motivate and unlock the potential of others. This is a story of developing and empowering Midot. We start by wanting to help, and then we learn to fear God, value relationships, work with the world, take responsibility for the weak and powerless, and motivate and unlock the potential of others. This is a story of growth. It is a model for us to follow. I said earlier that Yosef reached his pinnacle when the brothers came. I believe he fell from there. When he made sharecroppers of the Egyptians and provided the Jewish people with welfare payments by the head, he locked up the potential of others, took advantage of the weak and powerless, revolutionized the world, destroyed long-standing relationships, and stopped asking God for direction. All because he wanted to help. This Torah reading is a warning to us in our own development. Should we find ourselves at our own pinnacle of influence and power, we should still act with humility. Our goals must remain to empower others. Our goal cannot be to use our power to, so-called, help them. 
If we direct their lives, we rob them of their own responsibility. We rob them of their own slice of divinity. That is exactly the reality Yosef creates. The office of Paro gathers great responsibility, becoming the greatest example of human power and a fitting archetype to show the limits of that power in the showdown with God. The Jews are multiplied and they are enslaved. Perhaps their dependency on Yosef's payments meant they could not afford to run. And the Egyptians are robbed of their humanity, allowing them to be the cannon fodder of the Exodus story. It is a sobering story. Let's move on to the instructional bit where I answer common questions. First of all, why didn't Yosef tell his father he was in Egypt? On some level, I believe Yosef wanted nothing to do with his family. The name of his firstborn son reinforces this. And Yosef called the son of the firstborn Menashe, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. I think when he took Binyamin captive, Yosef might have meant to keep him had Yehuda not stepped up. After all, given the family he was cast from, Binyamin would have been better off in Yosef's own house. It might have been his plan all along. Question number two, why did Yosef relent for Yehuda? When all the brothers offered themselves up, no single brother was willing to lose. When Yehuda stepped up alone, Yosef could see that the competitiveness that had driven them to sell Yosef had been overcome. The family, through their own lessons, see Tamar, and Yosef's tests had grown beyond the family that Yosef had escaped. Third question, is Yaakov's behavior unseemly? Yaakov complains about how few and evil the days of his life had been. We might read this as some poetic commentary, except that in recent readings, he also seems to focus on the negative. For example, And Yaakov their father said unto them, I have been bereaved of my children. Yosef is not, and Shimon is not, and you will take Binyamin away. Upon me are all these things come. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and only he is left. If harm befells him on the way in which he go, then you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Yaakov is telling his own sons that they don't count, and acting as if all the misfortune is his alone. It is all very negative and self-centered. Might his life have been better if he had not thought himself as the victim and bereaved party time and again? Maybe he wouldn't have forced his brother to sell the birthright, or tricked his father and never seen his mother again. Then again, if he hadn't been that person, maybe he would never have become Israel, who battles against man and God and prevails. I guess it goes to show that even the Torah can cast a tragic hero. Well, folks, that's it for the first version of this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share either the podcast itself or whatever thoughts you harvested from it. And if you enjoyed it, you might enjoy a thriller I wrote about the ideas of blessing and curse. It is called The Hidden Agent, and it is up at josephcox.com. If you have any feedback for this, things you liked, things you didn't like, I am happy and ready and willing to take criticism. So thank you for listening and for reading, and have a wonderful week and Shabbat.